Hello and welcome to another episode of Finding Peaks. I'm Jason Friesma, Chief Clinical Officer of Peaks Recovery. To my left, Chris Burns, President and Founder of Peaks Recovery. Hello. And to my right, a uh, very special guest, Lisa Smith, uh, Family Peer Recovery Coach, or Peer Family Recovery Co I never know which order to put those words in, but um, Lisa's uh, joined us. Uh, Lisa, I met with you, I don't know, a few months ago. And you came to our office and said, I'm doing this thing. <laughs> and you gotta check it out. And, um, and I was immediately struck by your passion and your uh, desire to help families of people who are struggling with recovery. And I was, I was wondering if you'd be willing to kind of talk about, well, A, where that passion comes from. Let's start there. Right. Well, I'm a mom of a son who is in recovery, um, but has struggled for several years with substance use disorder. And so I have walked a difficult path in, um, with our family and, and um, the disease of addiction affecting everybody in our family. So that's kind of and where I started on this journey of working with other families. Yeah, can I ask a follow-up mm -hmm. question to that? Okay, cool. Um, and then how, I, I feel like you become the person that you needed during that mm -hmm. journey maybe, and, and could you talk to that a yeah. little bit? Yeah, I did. So um, my son, Struggled for several years, went through several treatment programs, and um, was successful in the treatment programs. Um, and we would go to family weekends, and we went to several that were really great. And um, you know, we felt hopeful and like we had our son back. And in looking back at the time, I was unable to identify this, but in looking back, you know, we would see growth and. Um, progress from him and we were in the same place. Um, we had not necessarily changed anything because we didn't necessarily think we needed to change anything. And um, you know, he was the one who was using substances and um, we had a healthy family and um, this was his thing. So the last straw was the day I call it the day I went from seeing in black and white to seeing in color, because I actually believe that that's what happened. Um, I was surviving my life, and um, my son was in active addiction. He was living in our home. Um, things were not going well, and he walked out of our house one day, and I turned around and said, um, I'm not going to sink on this ship. Mm -hmm. And um, two things happened. One was I had to take a hard look at myself. and. Um, kind of save myself and do some hard work. Um, and the second piece of that was all of the information that we had been given and therapy that we had and coaching that we had um, and resources that we had didn't sit well with me and my heart as a mother. And um, frankly, they weren't working. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of a rock bottom approach, calling us enablers and... Um, it just really didn't feel like that's how I wanted to mother my son. And um, so I had to ask myself a question. It was not a very good day in my life. I said, um, gosh, I, my son might not make it. And am I okay with the last thing he heard, saw, and felt from me? And that was probably the hardest day of my life. 
Because the answer was no, I wasn't okay with it. And um, that's when I dove into finding a better way. And I found a lot of data that spoke differently than, than what we had been given as resources um, by very well-meaning people who just didn't have the bandwidth to support us as a family system. So, um, you know, I really kind of dove into a compassionate, empathic um, connection approach with my son. And he um, did not return to our home um, for another about five months. Um, but every single day that he was out and in active use, he, we had contact with him mm. because we changed our approach with mm. him. Um, and I would say that it, living in our home, we did not have that same contact with him. Um, and in that five months, he felt loved. He knew he was loved. I think, you know, my son knew he was loved like deep down. Like, you know, we were a loving family, but the expression of love and kindness was not being given to him. And um, that's when everything changed. Yeah, that's, that's huge. And I actually remember the, the last family program you were in and I was running and you said something that's just coming top of mind right now. You said, what I love about Peaks Recovery, and this was when we were extended care, you said, um, different than the last programs we've been in, you guys don't kick the can down the road with respect to the client and make it somebody else's mm -hmm. responsibility. But when you said that, and now mm -hmm. that I'm sitting with you, at the time, we certainly kicked the can down the road a little bit with respect to the family. And I think you picked up that mm -hmm. can and brought it in and said, hey, I got this opportunity to really be connecting in this. And it was just something that popped up in my head when you were talking right there. And now I think with Peaks Recovery and you involved, the can doesn't get kicked anywhere. Mm. It stays purposeful and present in a real direction, specifically with the families in care. Now, we've always done a great job with the client. We've always been really client-centered. And I think since you've come on board, it's really given us an opportunity to really be intentional with the family system. And I think to your point, that's when we introduce compassion. That's when we diffuse shame and really create some verbiage um, that can be connecting in nature and not shaming. Because that's how I got sober, too. It was kind of that, that, that rock bottom approach, that all or nothing. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And the way that you speak so brilliantly to your son is in active addiction but you're communicative mm -hmm. and you're connected. I just mm -hmm. think that's the power of compassion. That's the power of insight and family systems loving their loved ones mm -hmm. into recovery. It's really cool. Yeah, and similar to, you know, there's multiple paths to recovery for people in addiction. There's also multiple paths and meeting somebody, meeting a family mm -hmm. where they are today mm -hmm. um, and having resources and tools so that they can live in their values and mm -hmm. their intentions, um, which is not necessarily the same as mine. Mm -hmm. For my family, my son had to not be in our home. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he was not healthy for us to be at home. And that doesn't have to happen. Um, I wish that I had done the work earlier because maybe we wouldn't have had to get to that place. Um, but you know, meeting families in their anger, in their pain today, and giving them the tools that maybe they use today, or maybe they use next week, or maybe they use in four months. Mm -hmm. um, just like people in recovery, I, it's it's very much the same path. Um, and yeah, I I think that's really important. Yeah, most definitely. Can, can you tell us about a time where you did it different? 
Like where you, mm. you, you went on your own path uh, with your son and his process, mm -hmm. where you had this opportunity to either mm -hmm. respond in the way you used to respond or respond in your new way. Yeah. Because like, I think a story would, I think, help yeah, illustrate Yeah, definitely. This. Well, um, this was not necessarily when he was in active addiction, although I, I have stories there too, but this is a kind of a big one. Um, my son was in sober living in Boulder and um, it was a pretty controlled sober living environment, like kind of right out of inpatient sober living, so um, still a lot of um, safety nets. And he had been there uh, two or three months and was not wanting to be there anymore, wasn't connected with the, the people, and it just, you know, and looking back, it probably wasn't the best place for him at that moment. And he called us, FaceTimed us actually, and we answered, my husband and I, and he, had his mask on and it looked like he was on an airplane mm -hmm. and um so we kind of looked like where are you where are you going <laughs> and he said well i um yeah i, I bought a one-way ticket to salt lake city and i left my sober living can you go get all my stuff <laughs> that i couldn't fit in my one suitcase so um yeah we were that was a moment where we could have definitely and i wanted to react in a way that was not have, would not have helped him. But instead, we asked him the phrase, what do you need in place for your recovery to be successful? Mm. And he just answered. And he had thought about it. He really had. And, um, and so we said, OK. And then you know, subsequently, we said, what do you need from us to support your recovery? How can we help you? And he was able to tell us, you know, I need help. I need to find a therapist. I need to do these things. And I've contacted this other sober living in Salt Lake. And, you know, can you talk to them? And um, so we walked with him on his journey that he chose. He was not in active use. So it was a little bit easier to support him in that. I mean, he was potentially making healthy choices and had um, good intentions. Um, but that could have gone a whole different direction. Mm -hmm. um, and probably nobody would have blamed us for it going sure. a different direction. Um, so that I, I would say that's an example of just saying, you know, this is your journey, and we're gonna we're here for you. We're here for you, and we're we're gonna help you make this work um, if your intentions are recovery. And that's always been our message: is we will support you in recovery. How, how did you figure out how to deal with your fear? Mm. Right, because I do think your initial responses were fear-based, right? Yeah. Where it was like. I'm feeling afraid, so I need to really control and maybe even micromanage um, your son's life. Mm -hmm. And so how did you pivot away mm -hmm. from fear, maybe? So there's a concept that is um, hard. And it's called radical acceptance, right? So um, and it, I, I work on it daily. <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's the idea of accepting reality not necessarily behavior, not, not actions, not, um, you know, yeah, just not actions, but we're here. So I had started to, and my husband, as a family, we've all, this isn't just me, um, this is a system thing, um, had already done that work of accepting, well, we have a son who is not what we thought, um, not who we thought. He, uh, was going to be, but this is who he is, and he's actually really great. And um, 
that takes, I think it takes daily work because you've got to be able to separate the behavior from the person mm -hmm. in order to do that. And um, also it requires you to not take the behavior personally um, when behavior starts to happen that you wish didn't happen. Um, like getting on an airplane and, and moving without telling us. Right. Um, so I, th I would say that concept really helps to get to a place of not leading by fear. It's not something that um, is easy and it, it certainly isn't something that comes natural as a parent. You know, you get scared like, wow, that's, I have the answer and it's not that. Um, but allowing them to walk that path and establishing that connection and that communication and that, that kindness, which I think is actually an extension of love, like expression of kindness is an extension of love. Of course you're a parent, of course you love your child, of course you're married, of course you love your person, but um, expressing kindness is an extension of that. And um, that's where I, you know, establishing that helps us get to a place of him understanding where our intentions are. Yeah. I thought that's great, for sure. And then in working with, it's so difficult, too, because ultimately what happens in that, and I think you defined it quite well, is I think as families, too, we're actually called to do our own work yeah. and really do that. Because what you, you spoke so eloquently to was not being triggered when my son presents a behavior that I don't agree with and just staying tried and true throughout that and extending kindness even a step further, which is so difficult in family systems when you're met with a behavior that you just adamantly disagree with. Mm -hmm. And so I just think that's so cool. Can we extend silence in the midst of chaos or extend kindness in the midst of chaos? I think that was just explained better than I've heard it explained mm -hmm. probably ever. So I really, really love that. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the activities that I do with families is establishing personal values. Uh -huh. And I think, you know, unless you've been through um, like therapy school degree stuff, mm -hmm. you don't necessarily, like in engineering school, they don't, you know, have you sit down and identify your personal values. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes you just don't even know your intentions of living mm -hmm. and um, identifying those values, then understanding that your values are yours and your person has different values, your spouse has different values, your friends have different values. They may overlap, mm -hmm. but, um, your values are yours, and that's how you show up to life. That's how you lead in conversation, in relationship. And then that can then extend to how to set boundaries with somebody because it, then boundaries become about protecting your values and your intentions as opposed to manipulating outcomes, um, which I certainly was guilty of setting boundaries and manipulating outcomes. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you one question because it's just coming up when, you're, when you've been talking this whole time. You know, the, the old or kind of what we would consider the archaic version of interventions. Yeah. How do you feel about that system and the way that it's set up where they <clears throat> sit down and they bring everything that this person loves front and center and they wage it against them? And they say, and I've seen, there's some efficacy to mm -hmm. interventions in certain mm -hmm. scenarios, but what you so... Um, eloquently explained with that can be counterproductive. Could you mm. explain that a little bit? Yes. Um, I disagree with that. Okay. Um, just personally, mm -hmm. I feel like it's very shame driven and shame based. I understand that at times the fear of somebody dying is at the forefront of that kind of intervention. Um, and 
So I'm not gonna say that there's never a place for that. Because um, sometimes you have to pluck somebody out of a scenario that is imminently dangerous. Mm. Um, but I like to say that with connection comes relationship, comes influence. So connection equals relationship equals influence. And that influence, um, you know, when recovery professionals tell families that, um, you know, you can't choose recovery for your person, that is 100% true. But what I disagree with is that there isn't a follow-up of, there can be influence, and there mm-hmm. absolutely can be. But the influence can only come if relationship and connection is occurring at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard to, to go to a mom and say that you don't have connection or influence. Of course you have connection and influence mm-hmm. with your child. Um, but is it, that's where the love and expression of kindness yeah. kind of comes in. Is the expression of connection and um, relationship influenceable right. or influencing? Yeah. Um, so th- yeah, I think that that's, <sighs> influence is way better than a shameful approach mm-hmm. to forcing recovery, which you can't force. I mean, you right. can force treatment, I guess. Right, yeah. um, for a day. But you, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, for a day, exactly, yeah. till they walk out. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then, which we have experienced yeah. that. Um, yeah, or a week, and it usually goes a week. But yeah, um, yeah but you can't force a mindset shift. Mm-hmm. And the understanding, when families can really understand stages of change and what their role can be in those stages. If someone's in pre-contemplation, you can do a lot of planning and you can do a lot of connection um, and a lot of acknowledgement of where they're at to create that connection, but there's not, you you can't force something. Mm -hmm. You can't force it. And you can't extend that kindness if you're not connected. Right. Ultimately, and then you lose it all anyway. Right. And that's, I think, sometimes where people get really comfortable on the streets. It's like, well, my family had this intervention. Mm -hmm. I didn't agree. Now I don't have a family Mm -hmm. anymore. And now I've been on the streets for 15 Mm -hmm. years. And so I wonder if that's a microcosm of some of that. Yeah, definitely. And so interesting with the example I gave of my son ending up on an airplane, um, he didn't tell us ahead of time. And we said, like, we could have helped this go a little smoother. (laughs) Um, And, you know, he was like, I was afraid to tell you. So even in that length of time that we had really worked on um, that connection and kindness with him, he still was afraid of our reaction. But I will say that our reaction in that that moment when it could have gone a very different direction, and then subsequently with him establishing himself in a new city and independently, um, a hundred percent, I believe that if he were struggling, he would reach out to us mm. um, and ask for help. Yeah. Um, I, I know it. I know a hundred percent. And I couldn't have said that a year yeah. ago. And he's been in recovery for 15 months, so over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I couldn't say that a year ago that he would have reached out to us. So it's it takes time and it takes work. And um, you know, one thing that I think is super important for families to understand is, yes, you didn't cause this and you didn't, um, you know, in most instances or many instances, um, didn't cause this and you didn't ask to be put here. But again, going back to that radical acceptance, mm-hmm. you're here. Yeah. And um, so you've got a couple of different ways of approaching it. Um, and one is more compassionate and more connecting and more able to produce an outcome of influence mm-hmm. than the other. 
Um, so, you know, kind of stepping back for a second and doing that hard work is, um, I think the payoff is great. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I think it takes a tremendous <clears throat> amount of courage too. Yeah. Because yeah. I do think shame is such an easy lever to grab and just, whether it's name calling or you're never going to measure up or even a shame-based intervention, like that's an easy lever to grab. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think Brene Brown says it really well that shame can create short-term change, but it doesn't create long-term change. Mm -hmm. Like you can, you can shame people into some course correction sometimes, mm -hmm. but not sustained and not that internal change. That's a, that's a really exterior motivator. Um, in, the, in the couple minutes we have remaining, will you just, Lisa, talk about um, the curriculum you've compiled um, and put together in, in that four-week class uh, process and, and the journey you take families on. Mm, in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so real quick, I, I wanna address shame because families also oh, yeah. <laughs> carry a whole lot of shame. And, and the day, again, the day was not a good day for me that I had to look at myself and, and realize the shame that I carried um, and the, you know, the career that I was in, I, I kept everybody at arm's length, friends, family, you know, other people in my profession, because I was embarrassed um, about how we ended up in the situation mm -hmm. that we are in. Mm -hmm. So um, I think sometimes reactions of families are also shame driven, um, because if we put it somewhere else, we don't have to, we don't have to address it ourselves. Um, but the curriculum, I just wanted to no, get think, that in there. I mean, we could spend another yeah. hour because yeah. you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, you're exactly yeah. right. The yeah. family, that control, when you, when any, if you're shaming somebody, it's your own shame. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I'm feeling like I'm a bad parent, so I need mm -hmm. you to get your stuff mm -hmm. together. Yeah, and that's hard, that's hard to admit, too. Yeah. Yeah. It it's really, really is. Hard to admit. Yeah. But we all have it. Every parent I've ever met, self-included, has a... I'm a bad dad, I'm a bad mom, shame <laughs> yeah. buttons, yeah. for sure. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, so the curriculum. Curriculum, yeah. Yeah, good, the curriculum. Awkward and um, good segue. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it starts with, it's actually very intentional um, in the way I move through the concept. So it starts with um, identifying values and really understanding personal personally where you are in your stage of change. And I will say, um, you know, I was speaking to someone recently at Peaks, actually, and um, about the fact that I believe my son was in a further stage of change. One time, I remember when I first learned about stages of change, I was not in the stage of change he was, because hmm. um, I was pretty angry mm -hmm. um, and had kind of had it. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, it was interesting for me to kind of go through an exercise of learning for the first time that there are stages of change. Um, so identifying values, um, understanding where you are in this and what you can put in your pockets in the moment and what you can absorb and what you can change right now. Um, going through exercises about creating safe spaces and what that looks like. What does it mean to create safe spaces? What does it feel like? Um, how can you change small things in your conversations that do create safe space and kind of open up lines of communication. Then I go through understanding stages of change, um, what your role can be in those stages, um, because it cycles, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it doesn't just have to do with addiction, it has to do with everything. Anytime mm -hmm. you need to make a change, lose weight, mm -hmm. just um, 
move, anything, change a career, you go through those stages. Um, so understanding those and understanding the why behind the behavior, how not to take it personally, yeah. how um, the behavior is actually about something much deeper, um, not substance use. Um, and then I go into what I call tools of the toolbox, like things you already know how to do, just need to practice it in different ways, which is good communication skills. Listening with empathy, open, asking open-ended questions, being able to sit with somebody and not give your input, yeah. um, asking for green light moments, looking for green light moments, understanding change talk. Um, so just being able to be present and reading people a little bit better, sitting with empathy, understanding what empathy means. And then the last step, which a lot of people think should be the first step, but it's very purposeful why I have it be the last step, is establishing healthy boundaries, agreements, and understanding the importance of self-care. So my purpose for having boundaries last, um, usually people are like, I want to do boundaries now. Yeah. Um, but yes. my purpose for having boundaries last is if you don't actually, you, you're, if you do all these other steps, you're establishing boundaries mm. um, without knowing, without stating it. Right. Um, but if you don't do these steps first, your boundaries are probably not going to be as effective um, and are going to be driven by your need for an outcome, mm. um, as opposed to your need to protect yourself and your own heart and your spirit. Mm. Yeah, I get why they would want to be first too. It's like, yeah. no, I'm pissed. I got yeah. some stuff. Yeah. Make, some, make some rules. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's gonna be some rules. Yeah. Right. Well, like a that. rule is not a boundary. Yeah. But yeah, and yeah. there's time for rules. Actually, mm. in my course, I talk about rules being really only if if you're dealing with a minor mm. or if you're a spouse and you have minors in the home because mm. there has to be some hard rules yeah. when you're talking about children sure. um and you know or if you're if you're a family who has a 17 year old that's not 18 yet and you're financially liable for something that they could do potentially and right. they're sneaking out of the house there has to be a rule around yeah. that um because you know you can be in serious trouble yeah, so most definitely well, Lisa, I, I appreciate you, yeah. you coming on. Your, your story informs your passion and uh, your, your dedicated work on creating uh, a curriculum. And, um, and I haven't said it, but you've partnered with us um, uh, to help enhance our family program. Um, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity for people to walk through with uh, grace and with uh, values and with dignity, uh, a process that sometimes lacks all of those things. Um, so thank you for being on here, and thanks as always, Chris. It's thank great you. to have you thank on you. here. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Um, so that's it for this episode. Uh, feel free to join us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and uh, Apple Podcasts and anywhere you get your podcasts, probably. Thank you. <laughs>